We are in week 26. Where is the fruit? We've been in this series of Acts, and last week we saw how Paul gave a beautiful defense to a Jewish crowd. The Jewish crowd didn't like what Paul was doing because they assumed that he brought a Gentile into the temple. So they were rioting, and they were wanting to kill him. He gets taken to the top of the fortress, the jail, and he gets to explain himself to the crowd. And he says, in my defense, God told me to go to the Gentiles. And we saw that it was, it was this huge, long sermon. And it was a beautiful sermon. It was like one of those sermons that, you know, churches shout at. Great testimony. He talked about his road to Damascus experience, that he was blinded by the light of God and heard Jesus, and he walked into his destination, and, and, he, and the, the blinders were lifted, and he, he got saved, and all the good stuff. He preached this long sermon. And the last two verses, we see this in verses 22 to 23. I'm going to read them again. The last two verses we ended on last week. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. Now, if you remember what that word was, shout it out. Gentiles. Yeah. Gentiles. Mm. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. They all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. They yelled, they threw off their coats, and they tossed handfuls of dust into the air. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was preaching to a bunch of people who were trying to kill me because they got mad about me bringing someone else into their temple who they didn't like, if God led me to preach to these Jewish people, I would think that the fruit would be somebody going to receive something in that message. Somebody going to get saved. Somebody is going to repent. But instead, it says the entire crowd yelled, threw off their coats, tossed dust into the air, and they began to shout, kill that guy. Not exactly the thing you want to hear from a church. Not exactly the thing you want to hear from people. You want to hear amen. You don't want to hear kill him. And I began to think if I was preaching to all this crowd, and I started to hear that. My first thought would be, what's the point? Why did I just preach this huge sermon to these ungrateful people? Where's the fruit? God, I listened to you. I followed your step. I walked in line. Where's the fruit? Paul listened to God. He was led here by God. He brought this message. And there are so many moments where we feel like when we don't see the fruit of our service, of our ministry, of our time, we think this is a waste of my time, or we think what was the point? And today, I'm not necessarily talking about the moments of regret. I'm not necessarily talking about the things that we walk into that we know God never wanted us to walk into. What I'm talking about specifically today is those times where you knew that God put you in this place or you knew God told you to do this thing or you knew God said to take that job, you knew God said to marry that person and now you're thinking, why in the heck did they tell me to marry? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> you know God said had that kid and then sometimes you look at that kid and you're like, hmm. <laughs> those moments where you know God puts you in and it's been 
three months, three years, 30 years, and you're still saying, where's the fruit? What was the point? Because we read scriptures like John 15, 5 all the time that says this. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. And preachers preach that. For apart from me, you can do nothing. They'll, they'll, they'll harp on that all day long. Remain in God and you'll produce fruit. And then we leave with this expectation that we're going to get some fruit from our labor which is true according to the scripture, but it goes back to the question, well, I'm still wondering where the heck the fruit is. Am I alone in this? It seems like I'm talking to all y'all. Imagine Paul. Paul's preaching. Everyone says kill him. And then look at the next verse, verse 24. It says the commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd became so furious. Remember, Paul is in custody, and at this point, he's going to remain in custody for the rest of the book of Acts. And this Roman commander, remember, Paul was speaking to these Jews in their language, in Hebrew, in Aramaic. The Roman commander don't speak this language. All he sees is, you know, yada, 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 and then the crowd riots saying, and then all he hears, oh, my gosh, this dude is going to get torn apart. So this Roman commander pulls him out, and he automatically assumes if he caused that riot, he must have committed a crime. So he says, let's whip that man until he confesses. Paul's following God, and it's not only led Paul to be arrested, but to be beaten with whips and make him confess a crime that he didn't commit. And some of us go through these times where we're abiding in God, no matter, and no matter what we do, it seems like it gets harder and harder. Nothing we do is received, and it feels like all of our labor is in vain. Where's the fruit? When is this going to profit me? And it happens in church all the time. When is this going to benefit me? When are we going to get there? I think sometimes about that about Relentless. We've been a church for six years this past July, and we have gone through so many waves of up and down. We started with four people. We got up to about 20. 20 lasted about a year and a half. You talking about doubting yourself? Try setting up at a YMCA for three hours on Saturdays to preach to 20 people on Sundays for 700 days. Well, more like 100 because it's like once a week, but I'm trying to be dramatic. Try doing that for two years and not seeing more than 20 or 25 people. And then you go through times where all of a sudden people start coming in and then there's 100 people and then 130 people. And then you move to a space and for those of you that haven't heard me enough say it, we used to be just in this little section where uh, you see the board up there. We used to be just in this little space and it was full and then the moment we expanded to triple size facility, some stupid thing called COVID comes about and no one wants to come because for some reason people think COVID is more powerful than Jesus. Okay, some people think COVID is more powerful than Jesus, and we don't believe that gathering together could, could, could be the, the remedy to a disease. Jesus put his hands on the lepers without gloves. When pandemic came, they walked throughout the streets with incense, and God says to lift up your prayers like what? Incense. And it's like, What's the fruit? You're thinking, should I give up? 
You're thinking, is God trying to tell me something? So I think to understand the question of where's the fruit, we've got to define what fruit is. You know, we always talk about how Jesus redeems. He doesn't just redeem your life. I also think he redeems our thoughts. Because I think, I think that we think about fruit. We've got to redeem what fruit is. So to talk about fruit, we've got to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And I want to read verses 11 through 12. Is this okay so far? Okay, good. Even if it wasn't, I'm going to keep going because I spent time doing it and I'm going to get some fruit. Then God said, <laughs> let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that's what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and the trees with seed-bearing fruits. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind God saw that was good. You may have heard it referred to like this. A seed produces after its own kind. It's, it's, a, it's a law. God spoke law. What was the law? You cannot get an apple fruit off of an orange tree. If you want an apple tree, you don't plant an orange seed. You plant a what seed? An apple seed. If you want an, an orange you plant an orange seed. That's just how the law works. The problem is, we read that and then we read verses like we just read John 15, 5 that says, remain in me and you'll produce fruit, and we forget a principle. Fruit don't grow overnight. And for some reason, we look at the principle of a seed and I, I did some research. There, there are some seeds that they, they don't, you, you, you put a seed into the ground and sometimes the tree, it, it can't produce fruit until it's been growing for about 10 years. And for some reason, especially in the church world, in the, in the Christian world, we think if we give God a little bit of time, we should see fruit automatically. And, we put, and the religious folk put that on people who sin or, or new believers like crazy. We think if someone comes to believe in Jesus, all their crap should fall off overnight. That ain't how it works. You ain't going to see the fruit of righteousness overnight. You plant a seed of truth, and then they have to be transformed by the process of renewing their mind. And the only way they're going to renew your mind is if people will embrace them and water the seed of a new life. And God liked that law. The law of a seed produces after its own kind. So he continues with more in creation. He says, well, I'm going to apply that to animals. Look at verse 24 and 25. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Thank the Lord. That would be weird for pigs to be producing cows. Livestock, small animals that scurry along, along the ground and wild animals. And this is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. God's all is good. God liked that so much that he said, I'm going to use that law of you produce after your own kind, and I'm going to make one more thing. Verse 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image. Let us make humans in our kind. They will reign over the fish in the sea, 
Because who, who was reigning over the fish in the sea at that point? Before man. God. So he says, I'm going to make man in my image, and they're going to reign just like I reign. They're going to reign over the fish in the sea. They're going to reign over the birds in the sky. They're going to reign over the livestock. They're going to reign over wild animals on the earth. They're going to reign over the small animals. The screen. They're going to reign over everything I just created. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So if a seed produces after its own kind, if that is the law that God created human beings to be, and when people ask God in the New Testament, can you tell me who you are? And Jesus' response was, I am. What if the way we measure fruit is simply to remain in the I am? Because if a seed produces after its own kind, that means the way you produce at your highest is to remain in the image of your own kind, which is the I am. God says, I created you to produce fruit. And the way you'll produce it in the greatest way is to walk in the image of me. The way you will produce fruit, the way you will be most productive is if you walk in the image of me. Because I created you in my image, I created you to reign in my image, and the way you will produce fruit is walking in my image. The problem is we have too many people and too many believers who accept Jesus, but we don't walk in any image of him, and we wonder why we're not seeing fruit, and then we put the blame on God. God, why am I not producing fruit? Because we forget that one word, remain in me, and you'll produce fruit. I, I, I put up a post on Facebook yesterday that said, stop being a fan of other people's glory and start walking into the uniqueness of your own glory that was created you by the Father. Think about glory. Because you can produce fruit and not be walking with God. Did you know that? Think about celebrities. There are plenty of celebrities who produce great fruit who don't walk with God. They are walking in a glory. But what happens to most celebrities when they reach... You think, think about some of the great celebrities. Kurt Cobain. Y'all know who he is? Y'all too religious, but Kurt Cobain. He was walking in a glory way outside of his time. And you know how he died? Say it loud. Everyone had a different answer. That's all right. <laughs> Drugs, suicide, everyone can call it what he wants. Overdose. Why? Because he was carrying a glory outside of the image of God. And he may have been meant to carry that glory but God says, I am your strength that you need to carry that weight that you cannot handle by yourself. So we turn to other things to carry something that we were never meant to carry alone. Why? Because when you produce fruit, the way your tree can handle the weight of the fruit is if you produce it by remaining in my ground. Because if you produce it in another ground, you won't have the strength to carry the fruit. 
And right now in the news, we see all this Pizzagate and, you know, all, all this crazy stuff with, 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 with celebrities and I don't know what's truth and what's not. But, but think about what's going on. We're finding out there's a lot more behind the scenes than there really is because they cannot access that level of glory without going into a ground that's corrupted. When they could have accessed it by walking in the image that produces much fruit. So they have to compromise and go into all this other ground that's being revealed. Am I talking to anybody? So it is no longer necessarily I need to see fruit now. It's is my peace simply remaining in the I am image of God? Because God says if you remain in my image, you will produce. But here's the issue. Because remember the question is what? Where's the fruit? When you got saved, is it is all right? When you got saved, you believe that you've got eternal life, correct? So why is it that you limit fruit to your earthly life if you live forever? Let me let that settle in for a second. If you believe that your life does not end, why are you measuring the fruit that God produces in your remaining to when you'll see it in your fleshly lifespan? If he says, you're going to live forever with me, and then when I destroy the earth, I'm going to put you in a new body. What if the fruit that God says you will produce comes at a time you may never see? But because you measure fruit by, I need to see it, you think that what you're doing is vain or is in vain. When God says, the fruit I have for what you're doing is in a time that you may not see, in a time you may not, and it could be now. It could be. But why are we putting human measurements on a glory that God says is outside of time? And what happens is when we don't see fruit, we question everything, and we spend more time questioning God than having peace of remaining in the ground of the I am. God, why should I serve you when you're doing nothing for me? And God says, you don't see what I'm doing for you because your mind is still right here. That's why he says, set your mind on things above because when you set your mind only on what you can see, you're limiting where fruit is produced. And we think, well, I'm not seeing anything right now. And God says, that's because what I have planned for you may not be in the right now. But I need to see if you'll remain in the right now for a day that might be in 20 or 30 years. And what Paul's about to see is he's gone through 20 years of serving God to get to jail and suffering. And he's about to see some fruit. Because remember, he's preaching. He's remaining. But in the human measurement, there ain't no fruit. No one's getting saved. And think about churches. How do we look at successful churches? Well, how many people did you baptize last year? And let's be honest, a church that baptizes a thousand, how many of them are actually walking in the way of God? I mean, let, let's get real about this. I would rather say we baptize 10 and 10 are walking 
than say we baptized 10,000 and five are real. And maybe that's wrong, but it's not. <laughs> we've got to be transformed. We've got to redeem the way we think. There's a popular pastor, or rather a popular church called Bethel. You ever heard of Bethel? They have albums, Bethel Music. Well, the pastor is a guy named Bill Johnson. And there's a story that a lot of people don't know. Bill Johnson's dad used to pastor the Bethel campus. And Bill Johnson was pastoring a satellite campus of Bethel in a place called Weaverville that's south of Bethel. Okay. Um, well, one day it was time to replace the pastor. And they called Bill Johnson and said, do you want to come pastor? And he says, well, I'm going to let you know if you want me, you need to want revival because I'm all the only thing I'm about is revival. So they said, yeah, yeah, we want that. So Bill Johnson comes to Bethel. Now Bethel is already about 2,000 people. And it wasn't named Bethel at the time. About 2,000 people at that service. Bill Johnson steps up as a senior pastor on a Sunday evening. And he calls all 2,000 people up to the altar. And he says, Holy Spirit, would you fall? And he doesn't label how that happens. And some churches love to label how the Holy Spirit moves. If you don't see someone shake, that ain't Holy Spirit for some churches. Or for some people, Holy Spirit is just something that you might never see. But he says, Holy Spirit, fall. And what happens out of that crowd of 2,000, he, he never describes what happens, but he says, one woman, it fell on her. And he looked at his wife and he said, we got it. Revival's here. And a thousand people left Bethel that night. Talk about a church split. Now that was however many years ago. And now look at their reach to the world. Why did you talk about that, Kyle? I'm going to read, this is not on the scripture, but I'm going to read a passage to you that God gave me yesterday before church. Luke 17, verses 11 through 17. As Jesus continued toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria, and as he entered the village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's funny how people cry out, Jesus, Master, when they need something. He looked at them and said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Ten men came seeing Jesus heal us. Ten men got healed. Now, this is where it gets interesting. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came, how many? One, one of the ten came back, said, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten of y'all? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. What does religion do? We measure a movement of God by only one came back. We need to pray for revival that all ten will come back. What if the shift in the church needs to be realizing that revival is in the, the ankle deep water and the shallow water just as much as in the deep end. 
What if revival isn't only when the ten come back? What if we recognize that we're in revival when all it takes was one? What if the goal is not revival? What if the goal is a restoration of the church and we're in revival for restoration? We're being revived for a full restoration. And when we start to understand that, we'll stop praying God send revival and we'll start recognizing we're in revival. And now the prayers are, God, how would you steward how would you have us steward revival? Because in your image, we reign over. And the fruit is if one person. And look what's in here. See, we, we, we've got to change the way we think about all these things. Paul's remaining, and it seems like there's no fruit. Verse 25, I hope this, I got, I got a little bit of ways to go, but, okay. Verse 25, when they tie Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? Mm. When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man's a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, uh, are you a, uh, you a Roman? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered. It cost me plenty. Paul answered, no, 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 no. I'm a citizen by birth. See, when Paul mentioned his citizenship, everything changed. Why? It was a serious violation of a Roman's rights to be bound without a trial. And Paul had already been bound a few times, so this, these commanders were kind of in a pickle. And the commander muttered, well, I got my citizenship too. And Paul said, no, 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 no. I was born a citizen. You see, Paul was a rare individual because he was educated, he was intelligent, he was a devout Jew, and he was a Roman citizen by his birthright. And God was going to use this unique background for Paul in a special way because his birthright caused him to get out of what could have been a deathly situation. And we need to understand something about birthright. Because the Bible says that we are, we are reborn when we accept Jesus. John 3, 3 says it. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So when you are, when you are born, when you accept Jesus and begin the process of transforming your mind, you are born again. What we don't get taught and what we need to understand is when you're born again, you no longer have just an earthly birthright, but you are born into a new heavenly birthright called the kingdom of God. And no one can see the rights you have as a citizen of the kingdom. No one can see what Paul had as a citizen of the kingdom. He had to tell them, I'm Roman. And it caused them to be illegally be able to continue. If we would start to walk in the image of God and the birthright of what we have as citizens of heaven walking on earth, do you realize what rights will be stripped away from the enemy being able to legally touch you? Think about Job. He was walking in his birthright to such a degree that Satan had to approach the throne of heaven that he got kicked out of 
and ask God, the one he rebelled against, talk about humility, permission to mess with one of God's sons. And you know, we always read the story of Job about how Satan got permission and took everything from Job. And at the end of the chapter, the fruit of that, of that was that Job was abiding in God and got all these extra stuff. But we forget about the entire book where Job goes through depression and he even questions God. Why did you let this happen? You see, the fact of the matter is, when you get born into the kingdom of God and you are walking in a heavenly birthright, there is something put on you. So if you're going through intense warfare, there's a few reasons you're going through it. One, you either brought it on yourself. Two, you're not walking in the image of God. So spiritual forces and principalities, as the Bible says, that reign in the, in, 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 in the, in the realms of the earth, they're, they're, they're coming at you because they don't, they, it's, it's kind of like when they said, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but who are you? They don't recognize your authority. Just like these Romans, they didn't recognize Paul had a, an authority to say, you can't whip me because I'm Roman. Some of us just don't walk in the image of God, so all the spiritual warfare comes at us because demons don't see that you have anything. Or three, you're walking into such a degree of your image that when warfare comes, it's God saying, I'm allowing this as an announcement that you are about to walk into the next step of your destiny. Let me watch how you remain in the warfare that I'm allowing. Think about Paul. He had a lot of good stuff up until this point. And now in his remaining, it's jail, suffering, about to be whipped. And all of a sudden he calls out his birthright and they say, whoa, we can't touch him. If we would just start to walk in that birthright, do you know how, you know how much warfare you, 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 you could possibly avoid because they, the, the demonic principalities could legally not touch you? And if they did, it's because God gave them permission to which says a lot about your remaining because you can handle the warfare trying to take the fruit off your tree because of the ground you're remaining in. And then we say, where's the fruit? Maybe sometimes God's like, well, I allowed them to take it because I know you will remain. And trust me, there's more coming. That's where Paul is. Everything's been stripped from him. He's in chains, even though he's free. He's about to be whipped. Paul reveals a birthright, and look what happens in verse 29. The soldiers who are about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest in the session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to give him stand before them. Paul gets out of being whipped, and then he gets put in front of the Jewish council. This is the same Jewish council that Paul used to serve in. So you would imagine what Paul's thinking. Oh, I see what God's doing. He let me preach to that Jewish crowd so that I could get in front of the Jewish council. That's, that's logical thinking. So Paul's going to get in front of this Jewish council, and he's thinking, okay, here's the fruit. And I think we do that. We, we, try to, we try to reason everything. Okay, maybe this is the fruit. And then when it ends up not being the fruit, we get let down, we question God again. 
But there was something that Paul kept in his mind, and it was back in Acts 9, 15 through 16. Is what the Lord said. It said, the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings. Throw that up there if you don't mind. Acts 9, 15 through 16. The Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to, look, Gentiles, that's why he's in this predicament, to kings, 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 the highest up government, as well as the people of Israel. So Paul's remembering, I've got, I've got three groups that God's called me to. Jews, Gentiles, and the highest government. He's remembering this. So even if the fruit doesn't prove to be fruit, he ain't going to let that cause him to back down or back up or stop. He's going to keep going because of the promise. Because a lot of times what we do is if we don't see promises fulfilled, we think God's going to, he changed his mind about the promise. God, God says, I will not forsake you. I'm not going to give up on you. So don't think the things that God has promised you means he's, he's going to strip that away. But don't put all your stock into what your mind thinks what should be do you. Don't put all your stock into thinking, well, I should get fruit here because I've endured all this. When God says, yeah, but you don't see the rest of what i got to take you through. You don't see that I need your fruit over here, but you're putting a demand on it right now. I need you to remain here to get you there. And I know you've remained through all of this, but I've still got more work to do. I've got more ground to till. I've got more water to pour. I've got more light to shine on you. I've got more stuff to do. Well, in the next verse, finally getting to Acts chapter 23, gazing intently at the high council, Paul begins, because remember, Paul's thinking, this is my chance. I'm going to preach to the council I've heard on. Brothers, now he should have said rulers of Israel. But he says brothers, mistake. Brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience. He says, brothers, I ain't guilty of nothing. I'm, I'm at peace of what I've done. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul, slap him on the mouth. Now, if I was preaching and someone commanded to slap me on the mouth, I wouldn't exactly be standing still. But what was Paul remaining in? The image of what? The I am. What, is, what does God command? If someone slaps you on one cheek. So Paul was rested. He said, I ain't going to let this bother me. So look what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? And those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult God's high priest? And look what Paul does. He says, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Because the scriptures say you must not speak evil of your rulers. Paul honored the man who was out of line. Because he was submitting to what God told him to do. And what happens with us, we, we, we accept the fact that we have a birthright in the kingdom of God. But when it comes to opinions about our rulers, we'll be so quick to speak ill of things we don't agree with 
Because we say, well, I'm an American. I have the right to. And God says, but you're born into a kingdom where I've stripped your rights because I'm the king. And when I say a thing, I want you to do the thing. He says, will you surrender your rights to the throne? Or are you more prideful about your rights in a country that was born out of rebellion from another country? And I love America. I love that we can worship in freedom. But let me just open your eyes. The freedom's getting taken away. It, it, it's becoming, and, and our soldiers are fighting for these rights. And it seems like they're starting to fight almost in vain. Because everything they fought for is being stripped. And I can't imagine the ones who served our country, I can't imagine what they're going through right now. Everything they've worked hard for, everything they fought for, everything they served for, and then what we're going through. But don't, and if there's people in here who served, I'm just going to say to you, don't, don't worry. There's fruit for what you've done. You may not see it right now, but there is fruit. Paul says, despite this, I'm still going to honor the leader. What's funny about this Ananias guy who's standing in this Jewish council, later Jewish people kill him because they find out he was pro-Roman, he was using assassinations to further his agenda and his opinions, and they found out that he was stealing tithes from all the priests in that council. That's why Paul said, you hypocrite. But look at what Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, a person who's put in charge of the manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by your own human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. I love that about Paul. That's kind of how I am. Like I have opinions. I'm like, I, I have my opinion, but I don't even know if I'm right. He says, my conscience is clear. But that doesn't prove I'm right. And what did, he, what did he just tell this council? He says, I've got a clear conscience. Doesn't prove I'm right, but I've got a clear conscience. Why? It's the Lord himself who will, who will examine me and decide. Don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring out darkest secrets to light. What happened to the priest? His darkest secrets were brought to light and he was killed. And it will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one what praise is due. Why is Paul so okay with seeing no fruit? Because he says, I have a clear conscience that when God decides it's time for me to get fruit, it will be given to me after he judges what I'm doing and he decides it's time for me to receive. And, un and until then, I rest in the clear conscience that I'm remaining in the I am. I'm remaining in the in the peace and presence of God. And that's the only thing I need to drive me. He says, I have a clear conscience, not because I'm getting out of jail, not because suffering's ending, not because God has given me hundreds to a church. Paul's not even preaching in a church anymore. He's preaching to people that say kill him about four times now. And he says, but I'm good with that. Because I'm not remaining in fruit. I'm not remaining in praise. I'm remaining in him. And verse 6, Paul realized, now he's preaching to the council. Now remember what I told you. This could have been the fruit. Well, Paul realized that some members 
of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. You know, when he realized, he's like, I'm not here to preach to these people. They want to kill me too. So he sees an opportunity and shifts. He says, I'm a Pharisee as my ancestors. I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead, which is true. He believed in the resurrection of who? Jesus. This divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees says that there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of it. So there was a great uproar. Imagine that, uproar in the church. Last week they were having an uproar about one word, Gentiles. This week they have an uproar about one word, resurrection. Next week they have an uproar about one word, carpet color. Next week they have an uproar about one word. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So there was a great uproar, uproar, uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up again to argue, argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. They shouted, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Verse 10, as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they were going to tear Paul apart. It must have been an angry church. Because just in case you don't know this, you know what the church was back then? The, the church meant, it was a word from ecclesia. It was the governing board of, of the area. So th this was church. You see, church shouldn't be let me come get a word to make my week better. This should be let me understand how I am supposed to govern where I go to. Govern my house, govern my job, govern my family, govern, govern the... I, I was getting Starbucks this morning, and I had a sermon playing, and I was tempted to turn it down when I got in the drive-thru, but something said, don't touch that volume. And I was in the drive-thru. You know, Starbucks ain't exactly known for being a Christian organization. I still drink it because it's good coffee. I worked there at one point. I go by to get my coffee, and, and the girl's hanging out the window, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking... What you looking at me for? I, I, and I just stared at her. I was like, and she said, I'm just trying to listen. So I turned it up. And she'd listen, and it was like a, one of those one word, you know, just a little sentence that she needed. And she, and she just went. She had church right there in drive-thru. Because I'm supposed to manage that environment. Not hide behind it. He's in this place. It's growing more violent. The commander was afraid they were going to tear him apart. So he ordered the soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to jail, back to the fortress. I'm getting to the end. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul. Now, this is funny because Paul has been kill him, kill him, kill him, shackle him, whip him, kill him, kill him. And God's like, be encouraged, Paul. And I imagine Paul's first thought might have been, where's the fruit? And then he says it. Just as you've been a witness to me in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome. Remember the promise that Paul remembered? Three people I'm preaching to. Gentiles, Jewish people, and who? Kings. Ruling authorities. And now God says, you remained in Jerusalem through all the suffering. And I never told you what was coming after Jerusalem because I never wanted to, you to know that there was a next step. 
I wanted to see how pure your heart was is that is if this was all you were ever going to get, would you remain? And because you remained, I'm taking you to Rome. Matthew 5, 8 says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. No motives. No, I'll go if I get something out of it. No, what's in this for me? Just simply, I'll serve. I'll remain. I'll do what you want, God. And then God said, I'm taking you to Rome. Now, to end the sermon, do you want to see what the fruit of preaching to the crowd was that wanted to kill him? Because it wasn't salvations, which is, which is weird because doesn't the Bible say the word never goes out null and void? Well, maybe we need to redeem that too because we think null and void means someone's going to get a word. What if null and void means preach it to people who won't receive it and the null and void is actually your destiny steps? See, we always think it's always about others, and sometimes it is about us. Paul's been preaching all this stuff. No one's receiving a thing. He keeps on getting in jail. Now he's in a prison, and he's not going to get out of chains for the next two years. And God says, be encouraged. You're going to go to Rome. Look, look at what happens. Verses 12 to 22. I'm wrapping up. The next morning, a group of Jews got together, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink anything until they killed Paul. There are more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. Isn't it funny how in this series of Acts, how every week we preach and it's something going on in America? Conspiracy theories. And here they are, they cons conspiracies. They went to the leading priests and the elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with a note to eat nothing until we've killed Paul. And what's funny is you know who they're bounding themselves to with a note? God. They just don't believe the Messiah has come. They actually think that they are merited by this oath. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We'll kill him on the way. And this Jewish council who is seeking God, they're like, mm-hmm, that's a good idea. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul, y'all know how kids are, they hear everything. Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did explaining, Paul, the prisoner, called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside, and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, well, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get to know more information, but don't do it. There's more than 40 men hiding along the way ready to ambush him. They have vowed to not eat or drink until they kill him. Which is kind of funny because if they took a vow not to kill him, that means they're going to be starving themselves to death. Praise God. <laughs> Some of y'all need to take a vow not to eat or drink until y'all help find me a wife. But <laughs> they are ready now. <laughs> <laughs> just, they're just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. It would have been on this commander if anything were to happen to Paul. So this wasn't about Jesus for the commander. The commander was like, 
I don't want to get I don't want to get killed. I don't want to get anything happen to me. I got to make sure that this Roman citizen by his birthright does not get hurt. So look at what happens in verse 23. Then the commander called two of his, his officers and ordered, I want you to get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Also, take 200 spearmen and 70 men of troops. That's kind of funny. 40 Jews are wanting to kill him. He gets 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 troops. He said, ain't no one going to take this guy. Provided horses for Paul to ride, get him safely to Governor Felix. Do you realize what just happened? He preached to the crowd. He preached to the Jewish council. No fruit other than we want to kill him. And the murder plot caused a Roman commander to get him out of Jerusalem and get him to the governor. What was the fruit of preaching to the crowds? He got to the kings. He got to the Roman government. Sometimes God uses things that don't make any sense to put you in position to where you're supposed to be. <laughs> he, said, he said, be encouraged. I'm putting you before Rome. God said, the reason I had you preach that message that almost got you killed is because I knew that those people were going to conspire to try to murder you, which would cause this Roman commander to get you right where I need you. The fruit of that sermon was using a conspiracy to get Paul where he was meant to be all along, to Governor Felix. Now look at what it says. Greetings, this man was seized by some Jews. They're about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Then I took, to, I took him to their high council to try to learn the basis of the accusation against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. When I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I have told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, so ordered, the soldiers took Paul as, for, as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. So Governor Felix read it and then, Paul, and then asked Paul what province he was from, Cilicia. Now, this is the cool part. Verse 35, I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. And then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. Herod. King Herod. You know, Paul was going to remain in King Herod's headquarters for the next two years. What was the promise? You'll preach to Jews? Gentiles and kings. And now he is in the king's headquarters talking to governors all because he preached one message to a rowdy crowd. And you know what the cool thing about this whole thing was? You know Felix, the governor that he just got to? I'm, I'm closing with this. He was the governor of two places. Judea and Samaria. Where did Paul just got them preaching in? Jerusalem. 
Remember, God said, go to Jerusalem, and you're going to be bound, and you're going to be suffering. Paul was preaching in Jerusalem. He just got to a governor of Judea and Samaria, and now he's in King Herod's headquarters about to talk to kings and governors. And there's a verse that we quote so much about outreach in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses telling the people about me where? In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. What did Paul just do? He said, you're going to get power, and you just preach in Jerusalem, and now you're with the governor in Judea and in Samaria, and I'm going to put you before Rome. What are to the ends of the earth? Paul is living eternally with the Father. Would you agree? What are to the ends of the earth? He may have not seen fruit in a jail, but his fruit lives on right now as we're being equipped by seeing how one man remained. And we so many times ask that question, where's the fruit, where's the fruit? I'm not seeing the, 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 the fruit of my labor. And God's like, Paul didn't see much of it. But can you, can you imagine, as, as, as Revelation puts it, the crowns on Paul because of what's going right now? And you're worried about, I want to see it now while I'm on earth, a place that God says I will destroy and restore, and I'm leaving that up to you? Everyone's so scared right now because of everything going on with hurricanes and earthquakes and COVID and pandemics. And everyone is saying the same thing. Everyone's saying, oh, the end's getting near. Can I just put something before you? You know the Bible says that Jesus is coming back for a spotless bride. Do you think the church looks spotless right now? Maybe our concern shouldn't so much be on, oh my gosh, these are signs. Because my Bible says don't look for signs. He says don't focus on heaven. Don't focus on up. He says go and make disciples. Maybe all this is happening so that we can understand the church is being sifted for the spotless bride. Now I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to come back like now. So if we want that to happen... Let's shift from, oh my God, it's about to end. Let's shift from, where's the fruit? And let's just shift to, let's remain in him and develop the spotless bride. Let's, let's, let's gather together. Let's, let's link arms, no matter if it's perfect or not. And let's raise up disciples. Let's raise up each other. Let's walk together. Let's put all this religiosity aside and just seek the Father. Not fruit. Father, because his promises, if I remain in him, fruit will be produced. But we're going to leave it up to him of when that comes on us. In our peace, I'm in him. Amen.